Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Each year, approximately 17,000 individuals suffer a debilitating spinal cord injury, which takes lifelong care by a multidisciplinary team to manage. In this episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the latest advances in spinal cord management, including care, education, technology, and research. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Greg Numenitis join me for today's conversation. Dr. Numenitis is a physiatrist and medical director of spinal cord injury rehabilitation in Cleveland Clinic's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Greg, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you. So, Greg, first off, who is the typical spinal cord injured patient? If I was to look at the typical patient, who is that? Well, it depends if you're talking about traumatic or non-traumatic. The traumatic individual would be a 19-year-old male who was involved in a motor vehicle accident and usually associated with substance use. The non-traumatic spinal cord injury would be an older individual in their 40s and 50s and may include uh, infection or other autoimmune-associated problems. So when I was thinking about spinal cord injury, uh, you know, and I was driving to work in March and April of 2020, I was kind of on the road by myself. Uh, And I'm kind of curious if the traumatic spinal cord injury group decreased in 2020, or do we not have that data or stayed the same? The data is not available for 2020. It is for 2019, and there was not a decline in 2019. They'll collect that data each year, and that primary data goes to the Model Spinal Cord Injury Statistical Center in Alabama, and they'll look at that information. It'll be about a year before we know if anything changed in 2020. The big changes tend to be etiology of injury. One of the interesting things as our population has aged, we're seeing a lot more elderly individuals falling and uh, breaking their spine. So, Greg, we know that spinal cord injuries are some of the most complex to manage. Can you start off by discussing some of the major medical issues that lead to loss of independence, morbidity, mortality for these poor patients, and help our audience better understand the factors that go into management of this complex patient population? The biggest issue with spinal cord injury is they got multi-system involvement with generally normal brain and cognitive functioning. I mean, if you had a stroke or a brain injury, you may have similar complexity of uh, medical issues, but the um, spinal cord injury is an injury below the brain. And so these kids are basically locked in with normal cognitive functioning, which adds a whole nother problem with medical issues, that being depression, uh, suicide, post-traumatic stress disorder. But the issues with spinal cord injury relate not only to the loss of motor and sensory function, resulting in paraplegia and tetraplegia, but all the autonomic dysfunctions you don't see. It's easy to see somebody in a wheelchair because they can't walk, 
But we really don't see the other critical issues like bowel and bladder dysfunction, pulmonary dysfunction, skin dysfunction, endocrine issues that uh, are related to the autonomic nervous system. So these patients individually got to be managed from each system on an ongoing basis for the rest of their life to enhance their health and wellness so they can provide the most they can for their situation. So how are early interventions evolving to improve the effect of short and long-term medical issues for spinal cord injured patients? Early interventions are really closely aligned with early education, not only of the patients as their own advocates, but also the medical staff, the nursing staff, the therapy staff. A lot of early studies, the big study was the stasis study looking at early surgery and showing improved outcomes if people went to the the OR uh, within the first 24 hours. And studies coming out on early rehabilitation. Instead of starting rehab, once they leave the hospital, you start right there in the uh, acute care hospital. And then, of course, post-acute rehabilitation therapies to assess and enhance uh, function. And then finally, some interesting uh, surgical procedures down the line with nerve transfers, tendon transfers, and electrical stimulation have enhanced significant function for these people as well. Delving a little more specific on this, uh, you know, you and I both have gray hair and been around a long time. Steroids come and go. What's the role of steroids now as spinal cord injured patients? There was a meta-analysis about 2013 that disproved any additional assistance in the recovery with spinal cord injury and the, the contraindications or the problems that were associated with the steroids uh, were worse than any potential for recovery. So they're no longer given in the acute care hospital. So I'm curious when you see patients come in, uh, maybe from other locations, are other places still using it or have people followed the guidelines? People are following the guidelines. It's no longer used. Uh, Comment about uh, stem cells. Complex topic, of course. It is a complex topic, and and stem cells are out there, and preclinical studies are great, but preclinical studies are uh, animal models, and um, a lot of times they don't uh, translate to improved function in humans. But there are several studies that are out there and was involved in one of them, uh, the Estribio study, which showed some improvement in phase one and phase two clinical trials. However, the problem with phase one and phase two clinical trials, these are small numbers of patients and you know, phase three clinical trials are necessary to really assess the, the full uh, potential for uh, the treatment. What are some of the latest innovations in technology and patient assistive devices? Well, assistive devices is really where it's at. I mean, 20 years ago, people were locked in their homes, unable to do anything. I mean, if we can at all imagine what COVID's done to us, magnify that by 10 times. And if you had a spinal cord injury, you couldn't drive, you couldn't walk, you couldn't ride a bike. It really puts you behind in life. So the, the redesign of wheelchairs, 
assistive devices for driving, for standing, for walking um, have been remarkable and really have uh, improved the health and wellness and participation of our patients with spinal cord injury. So what about uh, current research? Anything exciting in the field that you guys are involved with or you'd like to discuss that's breaking some ground? We did a uh, pretty interesting study in 2018 using direct current stimulation of the brain to enhance uh, motor function in people with, with spinal cord injury. It was a small study with eight patients, but clearly showed some improvement in motor function along with therapy. And at this time, we're involved in a phase two clinical trial with three different centers uh, looking at a larger volume of patients to assess the effectiveness of this direct brain stimulation to improvement of motor function in person with spinal cord injury. The cause of death of patients, has that changed over time? It has evolved in certain areas. You know, back in the 50s, you died from renal failure from direct damage from infection and amyloidosis as a result of uh, chronic pressure wounds. That is gone. And by the the 70s, uh, that was no longer an issue with the institution of good intermittent catheter programs and good wound care and wound education. And then pulmonary embolisms became one of the leading causes of death uh, and after clinical practice guidelines were produced and set out and people changed their habits, that's no longer an issue. Right now, it's pneumonia and sepsis as being number one and two causes of death after spinal cord injury. And unfortunately, that hasn't changed. They've been the leading causes of death for 50 years. And maybe it's, uh, again, too early to know, but has COVID increased uh, amongst the quad and patients? You know, it's interesting. Um, I've been looking at that and I'm involved with the United Spinal Association. and We have uh, monthly meetings with about 30 or 40 community individuals with spinal cord injury and really haven't noticed anything significantly different than the non-spinal cord injury population. I mean, they get it and they don't seem to have any significant issues other than what what the standard person would have. So the thing that always concerned me with patients in terms of the cost of care, how would a patient pay for their care? It must be extraordinary. Cost of care for persons with spinal cord injury is huge. The state carries most of the burden of cost, the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Most people cannot afford the cost. You know, if I can give you an example of the lifetime cost of somebody that had a paraplegic injury at age 20, it would be about $2.5 million. And if this 20-year-old individual had a high tetraplegia, its direct lifetime cost would be $5 million. And this doesn't include the indirect cost in terms of loss of wages from working in that. So let's go back to research for a minute. Let's say I have a drug A that I'm really hopeful that it's going to be uh, something to help these patients. What's the average time that it's going to take me to get that through that if it actually turns out to be a good drug? Wow. You know, the um, execution of the COVID vaccine was just amazing. 
because looking at the data, it takes an average of 10 to 15 years before a therapeutic goes from the lab to the street. And in um, 2010, the pharmaceutical research manufacturers of America produced an article about the cost and the number of drugs that came out in 2010. Only 22 new drugs came out at a cost of $50 billion. So I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that about the vaccine and how fast it went through. And I'm not sure how you feel about it, but it actually gives me hope that maybe we'll look at things differently and how we do studies and how things uh, are put through is going to change. And some of this malaise in the system will get better. Any thoughts on that? Uh, are you hopeful or? I'm extremely hopeful. I think everybody's seen it from the FDA on down. And I think it's their responsibility to enhance the approval of these new therapeutics for the improvement of, of life and health and wellness for, for all of us. So, Greg, uh, talk to me about education of not only providers, but also patients. You know, in this computer age we all live in, including the COVID environment, the development of, of computer-assisted education has been dramatic and it's helped not only our, our medical students to learn, our physicians and therapists, nurses, but also the patients themselves. I mean, the spinal cord population are pretty wise individuals that have lived life with spinal cord injury and often know more than the average clinician. These education programs go on through multiple avenues from the American Spinal Injury down to the community organizations has assisted in not only reduction of, of injury, but also prevention of injury uh, and complications as a result of spinal cord injury. Well, Greg, thank you uh, so much for joining me today. This has been a very insightful conversation. I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.